Why do you want to fight? This is the fight game with Demond Cotton. Hello, hello, and welcome to another exciting edition of the Fight Game on 1230 The Game. I am your host, Damon Cotton, and I say it each and every week. There's so much to talk about in the world of combat sports. Only one guest today, so we're really going to be able to break down UFC 284. Our guest today is going to be Muda Ali, and he's going to be joining us to talk about Cassius X becoming Muhammad Ali. That's a documentary that's going to be premiering February 20th on the Smithsonian Channel. And it's going to be a real good conversation because even from watching the documentary, that's the reason why you watch him. You learn something. And I learned so much more about Muhammad Ali and his journey to changing his name and all that went into it. And also some of the archival footage that they had, the actual fights that you get to see Muhammad Ali having were just phenomenal. The journey from start to finish, and it only encapsulates a five-year period of his life. You think of Muhammad Ali, you think of, hey getting his boxing license taken away, coming back, fighting Joe Frazier, losing that title, and going on for years and years and years. But just that five-year period where he joins the Nation of Islam, a real deep dive into his relationship with Malcolm X, all fascinating stuff. Can't wait to talk to Muda about that. But let's get into it. UFC 284. Islam Makhachev versus Alexander Volkanovsky. And... Who is the new pound-for-pound king in the UFC? It's still Alexander Volkanovsky. I don't care if he lost to Makachev. I do not care. Losing that five-round decision in his home country of Australia, did he do enough to win the fight? To me, he did. But I understand where if he's not... I understand the decision. It's one of those fights where you root for the underdog a little bit too much and that clouds your judgment of who actually won the fight because you're rooting the hometown favorite. He's the smaller guy. He, he is the underdog, even from the, from the betting standpoint. But did he do enough to win the fight? To me, yes. But when you factor in the takedowns, the time of ground control that Islam had, and that's where, that's where it comes into. It comes into the ground control. 48-47, 48 47, 48 47, and 46 49. For a judge to have it 4-1, and me scoring the fight in real time, I see how you could have come to that conclusion. Round one, Islam. Round two, for me, in real time, Alexander Volkanowski, but I see how that can go to Islam as well. Round three, that's also a swing. I could also see if you were scoring the fight, you can give that to Islam. Round four, clearly Islam. And round five, Alexander Volkanovsky. So that leaves that the rounds that are undisputed, who won which round? One, four, and five. One goes to Islam, four goes to Islam, and five, obviously, goes to Volk. But then rounds two and three, it depends on how much credit are you giving Volkanovsky for getting a knockdown, and how much credit are you giving Islam for scoring those takedowns? He was not being busy when he got him to the ground. Obviously, yes, he is just waiting, laying and praying. But also, maybe that should be something that we look at as MMA fans is, why didn't the judge just stand, excuse me, the referee just stand him up? Because, yes, 
Islam, he's great on the ground. He's obviously, he had the body triangle in, but he just wasn't being busy. It was more so of waiting for Volk to make a mistake rather than him pushing the action. So for me, the ground control, it was nice. He was able to take the back multiple times, but he just didn't do anything with it. And on the feet, I will give Islam credit here because this isn't just a, hey, Islam won the fight and it's a robbery. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. Because on the feet, he stood his ground. He was way better on the feet with Alexander Volkanovsky than I thought he was going to be. Because he landed some big shots as well. I don't think it was scored as a knockdown, but he made Alexander Volkanovsky slip. In boxing, that would have been a knockdown. His glove touched the mat. So it's just one of those... Who do you want to give this fight to? Who's the pound-for-pound pound king? And I know I said it earlier. When you're rooting for the underdog, you just want him to win. Maybe like you could see how someone could have given him the decision. But I do agree with the UFC stance when, it come, when you look at the pound-for-pound pound rankings that they released earlier this week. Okanowski's still number one. Because when you look at pound-for-pound, pound, he goes up in weight class, giving up several inches in height, and still hangs in there. If that's not the personification of what pound for pound means, I don't know what is. And he could still go down to 145. He still has that title. Yair Rodriguez in the co-main event won the interim featherweight championship. So that's going to be interesting to see. And I'm not saying I feel bad for Yair Rodriguez because obviously he went out there. He gave a great performance. He won against Josh Emmett. But man, man, man. Alexander Volkanovsky is going to be a man on a mission when he goes back down to featherweight. And there's no other way to put it. I know that the UFC, hey, you don't want a backlog when it comes to who's contending for these fights in the lightweight division. It's a stacked division. But I would, I would love if they could run it back. I would love to see a rematch. If Volk could get his rematch. But so many different factors. But that round five was hoping that he could get the finish. He just wasn't able to. And that was the deciding round to me. Well, not so much the deciding round in the judges' scorecard, but that was the best round that either fighter had. That was the most dominant round, Volkanowski's round five. So when you look at that, that to me shows that he was the fresher fighter down the way, that if he could have been able to string together, I know shoulda, coulda, woulda, if he would have been able to string together more of those round five performances that he had, he could have had that fight. But that's just not the case. Islam Makhachev still the lightweight champion of the world. And now we're getting a little bit into the post-fight shenanigans. I don't know if you see the tweets from Dan Hooker earlier this week accusing Islam of using an IV to rehydrate. Alexander Volkanovsky, he also alluded to this when he did his interview. And this is before the Dan Hooker tweets when he interviewed with Ariel Hawani. So it's something that's known in the UFC. They've come out. They do have new rules, or as long as it's administered by a doctor or a licensed professional, fighters are allowed to use IVs now. So it's not something that he cheated, but let's just say fighter code of conduct, something like that, where he didn't cheat necessarily, but maybe some fighters are looking at it like, hey, that's a little Bush League. I wouldn't have done that. I would have just rehydrated the regular way. I don't need an IV. So Islam coming into that fight, maybe being at 178, close to 180, did those extra pounds help him out a little bit more? I guess we'll never know. And it's something that you don't want to gripe about too much because at the end of the day, it was not, I repeat, 
It was not cheating. So as much as, hey, I was rooting for Volk, I'm not going to point the finger at Islam and say, hey, well, now that we know after the fact that he used an IV, maybe something was up. Maybe that's why he was able to maintain back control so long when he was on the ground. No, that's not the case at all. He's a phenomenal wrestler, and nothing that he was able to do in that fight, I think, was due to the fact that he used an IV before it. So let's put that to bed now. But Alexander Volkanovsky, still pound for pound in the rankings and pound for pound in my heart. Moving on to the co-main event, Yair Rodriguez, Josh Emmett for the interim featherweight championship. Now, Yair Rodriguez, that triangle submission choke, round two, showed why he was a cut above. The featherweight division, it's been in a stranglehold from Volk for so long that it's nice to see someone else get that title, even if it is on an interim basis. But now we know the next fight. Both guys left the fight. their fights with, let's say, minimal damage. So whenever we can get this unification bout, I know that Yair, he didn't want to hype it up too much because he said Volk has to focus on the main event that night after he was getting his post-fight interview inside the octagon. But hey, maybe the maybe summer, June, July, why not? A unification bout for the featherweight championship? Can't wait to see that because Yair Rodriguez, the link that he has, the submission skills, that'll be an interesting challenge. I know we've said it before for everyone at 145 when they fight Alexander Volkanovsky. They'll, they'll make for an interesting matchup, but I really want to see that one. And the star of the, the, star of the night, folks, Jack Della Maddalena. When I saw him at the Apex a couple of months, a months ago last year, I didn't know if I was believing the hype. He said after he won, yeah, he wants to be on the Australian card. So he got put on the card for UFC 284. But now I'm a full believer. Jack Della Maddalena. He said before that he's got the best boxing in the UFC. And now I believe him. The way he was able to pick apart Randy Brown, mwah, chef's kiss. Getting the, the submission victory, of course, with that rear naked choke. But this was all due to the hands. Like I said, some of the best boxing in the UFC, and now he is ranked inside the top 15 in the welterweight division. Mark my words, Jack Della Maddalena is a force to be reckoned with at 170. Didn't believe it before, but now I'm a true believer. Going down the card some more, Justin Taffa, Parker Porter. Wow. Two big heavies that just went out there and gave you the heavyweight fight that you're looking for. Justin Taffa, the homegrown talent, a 6-3 and three record. You're thinking, why is he this high up on the card? And you think, hey, it's the Australian connection. We'll just see it's going to be two heavyweights. But that knockout was tremendous. Grand opening, grand closing. That's how great of a fight that was. UFC 284, it absolutely delivered. Where you think about these international cards, the UFC going global, you know, catering to specific countries. You see in Australia, basically this was an all Australian card and the UFC delivered. Dana White talked about it when we interviewed him on Radio Row in Phoenix, Arizona. The UFC is a global sport and I think that they're going to be able to continue these country specific cards and we're going to see that next month when they go over to England, Leon Edwards going to be the main event over there. So it's just interesting to see how the UFC continues to grow and become such a dominant sport. Again, Alexander Volkanovsky, 
the pound for pound champ. And don't go anywhere because when we come back, we're going to be talking to Muda Ali about his new documentary, Cassius X Becoming Ali. And you don't want to miss it. This is the fight game on 1230 The Game. Welcome back to The Fight Game with Damon Cotton. Joining us now on the phone lines is the director of Cassius X Becoming Ali, which premieres Monday, February 20th on the Smithsonian Channel, Muta Ali. Now, let's get right into it. What was the most fascinating thing that you learned in your research for this documentary? Okay, I think the most fascinating thing that I learned, and thank you for having me, is that Muhammad Ali uh, has a whole different layer of his personality than what I, I expected, you know? And, and I think that might be something that may be obvious to some, but he is such a bright, shining star on camera. He knows how to work the crowds. He, he is so charismatic and such a... Uh, 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 he works the magic in the ring, right? And that takes so much of our attention. And I think what I learned it it learned is he has such an equally large, deep, uh, compelling, introspective, and and intellectual side that he was thirsty to feed during these early years that we cover in Cash of Sex, becoming Ali, and he surrounded himself with people like Muhammad, uh, like Malcolm X, and like people in the Nation of Islam and others during that time so he could soak up all that knowledge and and so that was surprising that as large as he is on the outside he was just as large on on the inside and i'm not i'm not trying to be judgmental like oh he oh, like i shouldn't have expected that but no one expects how big you can't imagine uh how big uh, muhammad ali's personality is unless you meet him but then once you get to meet sort of the other side of that you can't really imagine that either and that was good for me to learn during this process of directing the film and you speak about that large personality that he had where it starts when he was going over to the Olympics and winning that gold medal. And then when he came back home to Louisville, just not expecting, not getting that hero's welcome that he probably would have expected. How much do you think the segregation, the basic racism of the um, late 1950s and 60s pushed him or motivated him to join the Nation of Islam? I think it pushed him a great deal. Um, the, the small little bitty in comparison, uh, moments where I feel like I'm being treated a certain way because of the color of my skin today, they, they don't necessarily compare at all to living uh, in a segregated world. Uh, he grew up in the segregated Louisville. He's training in a segregated Miami. Um, his sponsor's in Louisville, uh, and he can't eat in the same restaurant. And I think it's just the omnipresent, uh, incessant sort of negative force that I, I would feel was so powerful that it would force change in somebody, especially somebody who uh, was not um, interested in yielding to the forces around him that made him uncomfortable. So I think the climate of the early 60s played a key role in setting Cassius Clay on a journey that led him to uh, emerge as Muhammad Ali, but then him traveling as a boxer contributed to that because in those travels he interacted with people uh, who inspired uh, that change and cultivated that growth and fed him information that allowed him to look at himself and his ancestry uh, and consider what he'd like to be. 
Again, we're joined by Muta Ali here on The Fight Game on 1230 The Game. Something that always intrigues me about a documentary is who can you get to sit down in front of the camera to talk about the subject? And you got some great people. You got the oldest daughter of Malcolm X. You got Jim Lampley, and I can listen to him talk about boxing forever. So how did it come about to get <laughs> these people to talk about Muhammad Ali for this doc? Well, you know, I've got a great team. Uh, I, I often say we when I'm describing directing films because it's such a collaborative collaborative process. So, uh, you know, my producing partner, Javon Frank, and, and uh, Robert Neal is another producer on there, and um, all the executive producers at Two Rivers in Scotland. They, they were able to do a lot of outreach. But then, personally, I, I, my family has a connection with Malcolm X's family um, that goes generation so i was able to make that call and connect with ambassador shabazz um so we we all used our best efforts to get these voices on camera and and it's always a blessing when people sit down and, and trust me enough uh while the cameras roll and to uh speak with them about something that's real something that's personal and 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 use just little bits of it uh, in order to sort of fairly and properly represent what they were trying to convey with me. Because those interviews, you know, are, are hours, hours and hours long. But I think what we ended up with was something that was personal and, and intimate while also big and grand and covering Cassius Clay becoming, you know, Muhammad Ali, but also becoming heavyweight champion of the world. There's a lot of good moments in the ring that uh, the film uh, Cassius X captures. Yeah, something else that I wanted to ask you about, you touched on a little bit where all the hours that goes into interviewing, what, what is something that maybe was left on the cutting room floor? Because it's over an hour in this documentary, but something that was left on the cutting room floor that maybe you just didn't have time to get in, but you wish it could have been in. Well, the political uh, climate at that time, there was no time to go into that. Um, there is a portion of the film where we see that, you know, in November of 63, uh, JFK, President Kennedy, was assassinated. But the political climate at that time was complicated and deep and played a role in the trajectory of, <clears throat> excuse me, of Malcolm X's life. And, and Malcolm X's life was connected with Muhammad Ali's life. And segregation in America was connected to America's foreign policies and the Cold War was going on there, and there was a lot happening politically that had to be left on the cutting room floor that I wish could have been part of it. But I think what's there is so rich that um, that it didn't it didn't necessarily make the cut compared to what we have in 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 the, in the film. Yeah, and the relationship with Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X, it's something that I knew of a little bit, but one thing that was shocking to me is that the age gap that the two of them had, because you look at it, I watched the film, let's say, One Night in Miami, where you think, oh, these guys are contemporaries, but it was more of a big brother relationship. Right. Is there anything more that you were able to discover in this relationship? I know that you said your family has ties with Malcolm X's family. Well, the thing that I discovered uh, specifically from Ambassador Shabazz during this interview was, that Malcolm X wasn't trying to uh, convince uh, Cassius Clay to become uh, a member of the Nation of Islam. Recruit is the word that she used. And I think uh, often, I think we generally think that people will try to recruit uh, members into the Nation of Islam. And specifically, I, you know, like I'm not an expert and I'm not a member of the Nation of Islam, but I will say that hearing from her that it was a process of feeding uh, Cassius Clay's curiosity 
and and I think all of that time that they spent as a mentor, mentee, older brother, younger brother was one of sort of feeding each other, you know, and, and it was a natural sort of connection that they made because they both, I think, had a love for uh, black people and a, a desire to affect a positive change. So th- that, that was one of the things that, that I learned from that interview with her about their dynamic that I... I assumed was somewhat different, you know? Yeah, speaking of feeding curiosities, I wish I could ask you more questions because I've got some, but I've got to let you go, Muda. So before I let you go, tell everybody where they can find it and where they can watch this doc. Okay, thank you. Uh, thanks for your time. Cash X Becoming Ali. It premieres on the Smithsonian Channel uh, Monday, February 20th at 9 p.m. Eastern, uh, 8 p.m. Uh, Central uh, this coming Monday, uh, Monday the 20th. So thank you so much for the, for your time. And thank you for joining me. Again, I want to say thank you to Muda Ali for joining me here on The Fight Game. So much that I wish we could have gotten into, but didn't have enough time in these quick window interviews. But something that also interested me from the doc that I want to talk about is the fight with Henry Cooper. This was before Cassius Clay's fight with Sonny Liston to become the heavyweight champion of the world. But in this fight, he went down in round five. He went down, and it was one one of those knockdowns where he was saved by the bell. They went on to say in the dock that if there would have been one more minute left in that round, Cooper probably would have finished him. And for me, not knowing that much about Ali, obviously he's one of the greatest of all time. But to see a fight before he loses to Frazier, to see a fight before that where he was in serious trouble was something new to me. So the doc also exposed me to things, even on the boxing side, that we didn't talk too much about with Muda, but also in the ring, the doc is going to show you some things that maybe you weren't keen on what happened to Cassius Clay slash Muhammad Ali. And something else after the Cooper fight was the Liston fight. But before that, Liston had to take on Floyd Patterson for a second time who had the backing of President JFK on his side. So for Floyd Patterson, when he was taking it on Sonny Liston, you know, he was the white knight, the hero, the one that, hey, you define what America should want in a heavyweight champion. And Sonny Liston knocked him out in the first round again. But after that fight, it's not so much about that. That was a first round knockout. It was Cassius Clay jumping in the ring, gloating, making a spectacle of the fight, making it about himself. Now, I got to say, I'm a little bit on Sonny's side when it comes to this guy, Cassius Clay slash Muhammad Ali, was an antagonist, getting under his skin from day one. Could you imagine you win your fight, you retain your heavyweight championship of the world, and the young plucky upstart gets in the ring and basically starts saying, look at me, look at me, look at me. Yes, that would make me mad, but that is also great promotional tactics from Cassius Clay at the time. I mean, who else who, who else would have thought to do that? To, hey, this guy, he knocks him out in the first round, but now the big money fight is with me, so I've got to promote that fight with me. You, you don't even see this in the UFC nowadays. Well, yes, they might invite someone into the octagon in boxing. They might invite someone into the ring, but to on your own just jump in the ring and say, hey, to declare that... The champ should be worried about me. That is just next level promotional promotional tactics from Cassius Clay at that time where those things were unheard of. And you see the legacy that he built to where today people still talk the trash, the gift to gab, the gift to jab, as I like to say. Just one of those things that 
is still unheard of. Not unheard of now because it is the norm, but back then in 63, 64 was really paving the way. So with Muda, I wish we would have got to talk more about the actual boxing, the style that he fought in, just all of those things in Cassius X in becoming Muhammad Ali. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little wrestling. Don't go anywhere. This is The Fight Game on 1230 The Game. Welcome back to The Fight Game with Damon Cotton. And welcome back to The Fight Game here on 1230 The Game. Now it's time to jump into the main event of the evening. And that's going to be a preview of Elimination Chamber 2023. The road to WrestleMania, the biggest WrestleMania of all time in L.A., the road's a little bit rocky, and it's taking a detour into Montreal, Quebec, Canada. Now, we're going to get into that main event. Sami Zayn, the former honorary Oos and Roman Reigns. But before we talk about Elimination Chamber, let's rewind it back to Monday Night Raw, even before Monday Night Raw, because we got to talk about Cody Rhodes. I said it last week briefly that we were going to talk about more of Cody Rhodes on today's show. And we got to. He won on the media tour on Monday before the Monday Night Raw inside a Barclay Center. And on the media tour, he talks about everything. Talks about his relationship with Dusty. We've heard that before. Talks about, hey man, he's already he's already punched his ticket to WrestleMania. So it depends on who he's gonna see at WrestleMania between Roman Reigns, Sami Zayn, could it be both? But the most intriguing thing that Cody Rhodes talked about with his interview with Ariel Hawani was Brawl Out. Yes, the infamous fight. Kenny Omega, the Young Bucks versus CM Punk. They kicked the dog, man. They kicked his dog. But to hear Cody's thoughts on it was something that I've been waiting for. Because whose side would he take? He still says that he has a great relationship with those former EVPs, with those EVPs over there. He didn't want to take sides. When someone sent him a text and said, hey, you look like the smartest person in the room for getting out of there, he said, nah, man, F off. That's not how he sees it. He wants AEW to succeed. But I'm going to lie. Oh, I'm not going to lie. I think Cody Rhodes is lying just a little bit. I'm calling cap on that. The fact that he sees all of the fallout from Brawl Out. One of his students at the Nightmare Factory was an first-hand witness to what went on there. So he's got all the details. He knows exactly what happened. And no one's ever asked him about that last promo that he cut when he left AEW. Because we all thought at the time, this is a direct shot at CM Punk. And he mentioned, hey, he was good with Punk, how he would always, you know, make sure he had his lunch or his dinner, you know, the days of the TV tapings. That's, that's just being a nice co-worker making sure that you take care of the lunch because he has the elevated title of an EVP. That's like a friendly boss. But I don't care what he says. I really think that CM Punk coming in AEW not rubbed him the wrong way when it comes to the company doing better because Punk at that time was the bigger star. But just something about the way things transpired and also with those EVPs because Kenny Omega also taking shots at him. When he says that he's cool with those guys, I think maybe just the Young Bucks, where he still has that relationship with the Young Bucks. And for him to play both sides of the fence, that's the masterful work of Cody Rhodes. 
This guy, he's carrying the company. He's the new John Cena. He's the new face of the company. After the Royal Rumble, when he took that sip of that Mountain Dew, Mountain Dew Pitch Black, I still haven't tried it, but he took the smallest of swigs and said it was delicious. I've never seen anyone take that small of a sip of soda and give a review on it. So he's carrying the company flag no matter what. Now let's get into Monday Night Raw from the Barclays Center where you see the backstage interview and it's Baron Corbin. And it's like, uh, who, want, who really wants to hear what's going on with Baron Corbin? Is he still with JBL? Maybe so, maybe not. Who cares? And then they got to cut to the ring. And it's Sami Zayn. These past couple of weeks where we've seen Sami Zayn hit the ring, it's been, he's hooded. No entrance music. He's coming from out of nowhere when he's confronting these people. And he says, before he takes on Roman Reigns at the Elimination Chamber, he wants to talk to one man. That's Cody Rhodes. Come on out here. And Cody comes out, and they both cut an impassioned promo about how they want it so bad and how Cody wants to meet him at this year's WrestleMania. Is that the main event that we're going to see? And that's all fine and dandy, but Roman Reigns, this is why he's in God mode right now. He releases a TikTok, and it's so funny. Where it's, if you two need to have a pep rally to convince yourself that you can beat me, you don't stand a chance. So for the greatness that we saw in the Barclays Center, two baby faces, both getting the pop, both getting the cheers for the champion to just come out with a minute TikTok just to say, if you're holding this pep rally that the two of you need to have, you're not going to beat me. That's all he needs to do. Didn't need the crowd, had his Jordans in the background. And I felt like he cut them both at the knees with just one, as I say again, TikTok. But that doesn't take away from the way that the crowd felt. Because something that was before this, Cody wins the Royal Rumble. Are, are the fans going to turn on Cody? Are we going to see a Bootista type of reaction? Because he's not the guy that we want. Sami Zayn has that groundswell of support. And we saw it on Monday with both guys in the ring at the same time. They both were able to maintain the audience. When Cody came out, everyone was singing Kingdom. The entire words, and Cody even put into words, were after the, after the show. I didn't think that people knew the song that well. Where everyone's singing along, they're not just saying something, something after the course. So that just goes to show that they've got two solid baby faces. Where there was that time where who's going to beat Roman Reigns? Who's going to dethrone Roman Reigns? This has been a historic, a historic championship reign. But now we see that Sami Zayn and Cody Rhodes, he's got two challengers now. Something that maybe even a year ago, you would just think, uh, what are they going to do? Are they going to run it back with Brock? Brock's the only person that looks like a viable contender to that WWE Universal Championship. But now we're seeing Cody Rhodes and Roman Reigns that are two contenders, and Cody Rhodes, he's white hot right now. He did everything to put over Sami Zayn ahead of Elimination Chamber and still keep the fans on his side, and that was masterful babyface work. Now let's get into Elimination Chamber. This card, it's not lackluster at all. 
But when you have the big chamber match, you know that that match is going to take some time. We've got two of those on the women's side and the men's side. So we know that it's going to be a little bit long on that side for the Elimination Chamber. So let's start with the one singles match that's not a championship match, Bobby Lashley versus Brock Lesnar. Now these two have been feuding for what feels like a year now. And now we've seen Bobby Lashley. He's completed the hill turn. On Monday night, we have the contract signing and the crowd saying Bobby's scared. He's got 20 security guards with him, and we all know that Brock Lesnar is going to mow down them all. But I'm really interested to see who's going to win this because do we get the Hurt Business back together? Does the Hurt Business deliver the beat down to Brock Lesnar? And then we get to see Bobby Lashley reunite with MVP and reform the Hurt Business. Because before this feud with Brock Lesnar, Bobby Lashley, when he had that U.S. title reign, he was one of the best baby faces on Monday Night Raw. But then that, that got put on the back burner a little bit because in this feud with Brock Lesnar, hey, got to have a baby face, got to have a heel. And Bobby Lashley is that heel now. And he's putting on some of the best work of his career. But I wish that the breadcrumbs, how they're slow dropping it, slow pacing it, just give it to me now. Give me the reformation of the Hurt Business. I don't know if it's going to be the first iteration that we saw with Sheldon Benjamin, Cedric Alexander, Bobby Lashley, and MVP, or even if they add Omos into the group. It's going to be interesting to see. And Brock Lesnar, he needs to get out of this feud as well because I'm ready to see what he's going to have at WrestleMania. I think that a program with him and Gunther, although unlikely, I would want to see where this is going to end up because at the end of the day, this needs to be the final matchup between Bobby Lashley and Brock Lesnar for a while. They've been going at it for, like I said, almost a year now. Back at the Royal Rumble last year, Bobby Lashley defeated Brock Lesnar. They had the rematch at Crown Jewel in which Lesnar got the win over Lashley. And now it's time. 1-1, let's end it. I don't care who wins, but I need this feud to be over because I think both guys need to branch off and do something different for WrestleMania. Unless there's a DQ finish, there's some chicanery, the Hurt Business, that's where how they form. They give the beat down to Brock Lesnar, and then that sets up for a match at WrestleMania. And that could very well be the case, but I want to see something different. Bobby and Brock, we've had the dream match. We've seen it take place now. Now these two need to move apart from each other. Now going on to the mixed tag match, Edge and Beth Phoenix versus The Judgment Day. Finn Balor, Rhea Ripley. Now I know that Finn's in this match and not Dominic Mysterio, but let's take it back to Valentine's Day because everything that WWE does when it comes to these holiday social media videos that they put together where Dominic is just terrorizing his family or he's going to find Rey Mysterio on Thanksgiving, on Christmas, interrupts his parents' Valentine's Day dinner. And it's the heel work that he's putting on. We know that he's the snot-nosed brat that hasn't had to work that hard to get to where he's at. He's entitled. He asked the waiter, let me get your best glass of champagne and your finest chicken fingers. Or we know that he's the kid that's in over his head. 
He sees the cops walk in. You know I'm the most wanted man on TikTok. Everything that he says is perfect to a T. Dominic Mysterio is hitting it out of the park with Rhea Ripley. And now this Judgment Day feud. This is another feud that's been happening for over a year now. Rhea Ripley, she's, she's moving on to Charlotte. We already know that she's going to be taking on Charlotte at WrestleMania. Beth Phoenix coming back. We saw it clash at the castle. The tag team match that the Judgment Day, they lost. Because you would think, uh, oh, Edge has never defeated the Judgment Day. And that's why he needs this. Back at Extreme Rules, Finn Balor defeated him in an I Quit match. But he only had to say he quit because they were going to injure his wife, Beth Phoenix. So there's just so much that's been going on ever since Edge has been kicked out of the Judgment Day. And I think that this also, another feud, like I said, with Bobby Lashley and Brock Lesnar, needs to end. We've had enough. We've seen all the twists and turns that this storyline can give us. So with this mixed tag, Edge and Beth Phoenix, I'm not saying that they need the win more. But the Judgment Day, do they need this win to stay hot as well? Because we can always say they could just beat them down after the match and still look strong. Edge is a Hall of Famer. He's goaded. He doesn't need any more wins. But could this be the final cherry on top that allows him to move on from the Judgment Day as well? But with Rhea needing to still look strong with Charlotte on the horizon at WrestleMania, the Judgment Day still needing to look like the dominant faction because it's looking like the bloodline's coming to an end. So with the bloodline coming to an end, the Judgment Day, they are the faction in WWE. They are the main faction on Monday Night Raw. But if there's no bloodline, as it's looking like it's going to come to an end, they need to remain strong and not lose, even if it is in a mixed tag match. Now let's go to the chamber matches. We're going to start with the women's one. As you're going to see Asuka versus Liv Morgan versus Nikki Cross versus Raquel Rodriguez versus Natalia versus Carmella. Now you can just look at this and you can tell with these big multi-person matches, you know who's going to win and you know who's you know who the, the obvious contenders are. The winner of this Elimination Chamber match gets a shot at Bianca Belair at WrestleMania 39. Nikki Cross, I don't see her in a program with Bianca Belair at WrestleMania. Raquel Rodriguez, not yet. We know that she's one of them ones that's up and coming, but not yet. Natalia, the workhorse of the women's division. I don't see the storyline that you put her in with Bianca Belair. And Carmella, uh, maybe you could see it, but she's freshly back where WrestleMania is around the corner. I don't think that the story with her and Bianca would be a WrestleMania-worthy storyline. So then that leaves Asuka and Liv Morgan. And these two women are the clear favorites in this match, where Asuka, where we've seen the turn. Asuka's ramping it up. The character's getting more edgy. She's a bit more out there. It's a bit wilder of a character with Asuka. And I think that that would be the perfect foil for Bianca Belair at WrestleMania 39. And Liv Morgan, maybe it can be a triple threat. Maybe she can somehow work her way into this as well. But I think that Asuka's just got to be the favorite in this Elimination Chamber match because the storyline that she can work with Bianca Belair. I do think that WWE messed up just a little bit when it comes to the women's matches that are going to be taking place at WrestleMania. Rhea Ripley should have won the Royal Rumble and challenged Bianca 
and had Asuka maybe win this Elimination Chamber match and challenge Babyface Charlotte because Rhea Ripley is over like Rover. And I don't think that she's going to get booed when she's in the ring with Charlotte. So if the WWE, because I think that Asuka is winning this Elimination Chamber match, if they were to flip-flopped the champion and challenger with the women's matches at WrestleMania 39, I think they'd be in a little bit better position. But I still think that they're going to be able to turn it around and give us a good women's title matches at WrestleMania. Now to the men's chamber match for the United States Championship. Austin Theory versus Seth freaking Rollins versus Johnny Gargano versus Bronson Reed versus Damian Priest versus Montez Ford. First, let's start with Seth freaking Rollins. Those boots that he wore on Monday, those big red boots, I've seen the price. The retail price on them is about $350, the big red boots. After tax, you're probably looking at about $400. I'm going to wait for, you know, the Sheen version, the Wish.com version of them. But yes, I would wear those big red boots. Or yes, they're cartoon-like. Yes, he looks like he's out of Super Mario Brothers or something. But it's one of those, if anybody in WWE can pull it off, it's Seth freaking Rollins. As he delivered the curve stomp to The Miz in the big red boots. One of the highlights from Monday Night Raw. And it's one of those moments where Seth Rollins, he seamlessly completed the babyface turn to where he was the diabolical hill, what feels like maybe two months ago. And now he's getting cheered. Everybody's singing the song with him where the Miz can't even start Miz TV. So Seth freaking Rollins, is he going to win this match at Elimination Chamber? No. But man, the WWE has done a great job with him. And everyone can't always be in the title, in the title picture, in that main event. But Seth is working hard to show why he should be every year. You've got Austin Theory, the U.S. title holder. Is he going to lose this match? I don't think so, because you've got Johnny Gargano in it. I know Triple H loves Johnny Gargano, but I can't see him becoming the U.S. championship with WrestleMania right around the corner. Bronson Reed, a big monster heel, but you've got Gunther, who's the SmackDown Intercontinental Champion, and you don't want both of your mid-card titles being held by two monster heels. Damian Priest from the Judgment Day. Does it make sense? He's been on a hot streak as well. Maybe Priest makes sense. And Montez Ford, who we all know that, hey, he's the guy, the Street Profits. He's the one. He's going to be the Shawn Michaels to the Marty Jannetty. I hate to use that phrase, but he's the guy that's going to get the rocket. He's going to get the rocket attached to his back after the Street Profits split up, if they do split up. So for Montez Ford, I don't think that it makes sense for him to win this title here. No, but we know that he is the guy in waiting. The frog splash, he's jumping out the gym. All the charisma in the world. But in this match with the storylines, when you do the process of elimination, I think it only makes sense that Austin Theory retains here and maybe the setup for him going to WrestleMania would be maybe him and Johnny Gargano are the final two. You get that rekindling of the rivalry from the way in NXT. And that's how you set that up for WrestleMania. But Austin Theory, I don't see him losing this. Bronson Reed, I don't see him winning it. Damian Priest, the Judgment Day, I don't know where Judgment Day is going to be headed towards WrestleMania, but maybe it's another Priest versus Edge. Priest versus Edge at WrestleMania, maybe. Just trying to do the, the, the storyline mapping 
or how is this all going to tie in together for WrestleMania is what you should be setting up for Elimination Chamber. And with that being said, Austin Theory is probably going to retain that United States Championship at Elimination Chamber. Now, this is what we've all been waiting for for forever. The main event, Sami Zayn in his hometown in Montreal, taking on the tribal chief, Roman Reigns. And it's been a long time coming. After the beatdown at the Royal Rumble, Sami Zayn with the run-inch, attacking Roman Reigns, but Roman Reigns getting the better of him with the help of the getting the better of him with the help of the bloodline. This is gonna be an all-timer to me. Because we're finally gonna be see Sami Zayn wrestle in that babyface role, the greatest underdog that we've ever seen in the history of NXT. He's going to be able to pull out all the stops in the hometown. And with the Usos, I do think that they are cleared to enter Canada. So maybe we see them get involved with as well. Last week on SmackDown, Roman did say, hey, Jimmy, I want you to watch from home. But I think that's just going to be the diversion for we get the bloodline. Yes, they are going to put the beat down on Sami Zayn after this match. But then the return pop for Kevin Owens. We haven't seen him since the Royal Rumble either. That's going to be perfect. That's going to be great. For this matchup, there's no way that Roman loses the Universal Championship at Elimination Chamber, but I do think that him and Sami Zayn are going to put on a masterful match. For this has just been the best storyline that we've seen in WWE in God knows how long. And it sucks that it's probably going to end here at Elimination Chamber. This ends at Elimination Chamber. You have, Sammy, you have Sammy and Kevin, and then they'll probably take on the Usos at WrestleMania. I know people are saying, hey, maybe this is more of Jay's storyline. When we had Cameron Hawkins from The Ringer on a few weeks ago, he said his biggest prediction for 2023 is going to be Jay Uso, WWE Universal Champion. Or people are saying this is the Jay story. Or if you look at it from his eyes, and yes, this has been a great storyline, but I think that we see it close out. Just the Sammy chapter with Roman Reigns closes out at Elimination Chamber. Because WrestleMania 39, that main event, it needs to be Cody Rhodes, Roman Reigns, one-on-one. I know people are saying, hey, maybe it could be a triple threat. You include Sammy in the main event. I don't want to see it. I want Roman Reigns to definitively put Sammy to bed. It would be even better to me maybe if it's a squash match. If it was a squash match for Roman to say, hey, I'm in God mode. He's tired of toying around with Sami Zayn. For the storyline purposes, yes, that would be great. But not in Montreal, not in Sammy's hometown. That's not how it's going to go down. It just can't. It just can't. And that's going to do it for us here on The Fight Game. Don't miss Elimination Chambers. That's going to be taking place this Saturday. You can check that out on Peacock. Alexander Volkanovsky, still the pound-for-pound king to me in the UFC. And hey, Cassius X, Becoming Ali. Check that out on President's Day. We all have the day off. The Smithsonian Channel. You don't want to miss that either. Thank you to Muda Ali for joining me here on The Fight Game on 1230 The Game. Stay safe and protect yourself at all times, everybody.